Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, so if you want to go ahead and turn there and um, just park there for our time today. I would start by just telling you, it is a, it's a real pleasure for me to be here with you guys. Uh, I lived in Billingham for three and a half years, and even just driving up yesterday, uh, there's something refreshing, I think, about coming to a place that you've been able to leave and then just come back to, and you just see it with, with all new eyes. And so there's something about the weather, and um, especially where I'm at, I'm from Bremerton, and it's raining right now, and I got to enjoy a whole day of sunshine up here yesterday. Um, I'm not much of a people person, so I would say it's, it's not necessarily the people of Billingham, but it, it is uh, Trev's family that I, um, and the limbs. For those that know Art and Diana, uh, just near and dear to my heart. So it's a pleasure for me to be here. Uh, the other reason it's just a pleasure is I have um, known about Christ Church uh, before it was planted. I would hear about it from Trev as he was talking with Nate and um, knowing the men that serve here. Knowing Nate and Trev, um, it's it's a huge blessing to step here and to speak um, with them on behalf of them and for them. Um, these guys, I, I don't think many of you need to know this, but uh, serve you well. These are good men. These are smart men. These are humble men. And I am just delighted to serve alongside them. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word, reading your word, trusting your word that it would inform us and teach us and help us to clearly see Jesus, to clearly see life as it um, as you ask that it be lived, that we would see ourselves, that we would see our sin, and that we would see the beauty of the cross that takes away the penalty of our sin. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I ask that as we sit under it, you would teach us, that you'd breathe life into us, that you would challenge assumptions and presumptions that we have, that you would make a um, a clear path that we might see the beauty of the gospel because of your word, because of the spirit that leads us into truth, and because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it's not hard to be uh, taken with the beauty of this passage. Uh, I find that 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 has the simplest definition of the gospel that I've, I've come across. For me, it's been the most beneficial. It's clear, it's concise, it's dealing with the objective, historical nature of the gospel. It's not hard to be taken with this. It's talking about the power to save. It's talking about the good news. Paul, at the end of 14 chapters, going to the 15th and final chapter to this Oh, 16 chapters in Corinthians. Uh, towards the end, he's, he's challenging this, this church to remember the gospel. And then he's telling them that this is a matter of, of first importance, of central importance. So this is what I would call a very high-octane passage. But as I, as I studied and as, the, as the, I felt like the Lord was leading me into this, I became disturbed partway through this. It was just very uncomfortable as I read about Paul halfway through these verses saying that all of this is true for you. The beauty of the gospel is true for you. Christ's taking away your sin is true for you. And then he uses this disturbing word, if. 
Right in the middle, he says, this is all true for you if you hold fast to the truth I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And I don't know about you, but as I, as I hear that, I think, well, well, obviously I'm not the one that believes in vain. I mean, anybody who's going to read this, I don't think is going to call themselves into that category. But clearly Paul is saying that there's people in this Corinthian church who, whose belief is solid, whose belief is something they can stand on and grasp. And there is a way of believing that in the end is vain, is meaningless, is, is impotent. And, and as I read that and I think, well, surely, Lord, that, that's not us. It, it challenges me to at least for a moment, and I hope for you for a moment this morning, to say, what is it that our faith is in? Because I, I would contend that, that Paul is not here talking about the strength of your faith, how much you can muster up feverishly to, to believe in this, but rather he's talking about the object of your faith. And, and as you go through this, you, you see the way that Paul is addressing the gospel is not something about, here's a better way to grip. Or here's 12 steps on how you can better understand and place yourself in that category. Instead, what he's talking about is the foundation by which you place your faith. Um, in, in this culture, I, I would say that, um, and I don't know about you, but I, I have seen people sort of make a virtue out of what they call blind faith. I don't know if this has happened in your life, but, but when people would say, you know, whatever they believe, at least they're a man or a woman of faith. Or someone, when they're pressed enough about what they believe, they say, you know, I just choose to believe. Or I, I believe I have blind faith, and it's sort of a virtue. But the odd thing is about this virtue is there's nowhere else in our lives besides matters of spirituality where this is seen as a good thing. Uh, hopefully, you wouldn't just send your kids to someone's house without fir- you know, first knowing who those parents or that family is. You don't do that out of blind faith. We don't step out of the grocery store and into the parking lot without looking both ways out of blind faith. You don't go rock climbing without understanding that the harness is, is also anchored in some place out of blind faith. It doesn't matter how hard you grip that rope or how hard you hold on to that harness, you're going to fall. But for some reason in our culture, we talk about blind faith as if it's a good thing, or that many do. So to, to deal with this fact, Paul is here talking about, um, in particularity, he's talking about not the strength of our faith. And, and instead, he decides to go through this passage. It's talking about the foundation, the concrete foundation of the faith that we believe. So um, let's go ahead and just take this piecemeal. I'm going to start at the end of this because I, I think that what Paul does is he, as you see even in his, in his language, he, he grounds everything he's, he's saying. So I want to start at the end and then work our way back to the beginning so by the time that we're done this morning, we can say um, we are reminded of the gospel. At this end, you see that Paul says twice that when he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he's talking about the death of Christ, when he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, he's saying that both are done according to the scriptures. So, so he's, he's making a point out of saying the concrete nature of your faith is something that can be grounded according to the scriptures. Something that you are inclined to. Something that you're brought to. Something you're brought into alignment with is scripture. And the reason why I think this is so important is um, in the way that we live our lives, particularly in this day and age, the things by which that we are most informed by, unfortunately, are not matters of scripture, they're matters of culture. 
And I'm not saying that culture is necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying that we sort of just receive everything that culture brings to us, and it informs the way that we respond. I, I would say even in Billingham, which happens to be a place that sometimes can be very anti-cultural or against the culture or trying to find new ways. Um, and I, I don't mean to be offensive here, but I remember being a sophomore in college, and, and it seemed to be everybody wanted to find their identity in being original. Uh, and, and so one example was was uh, a guy I saw wearing you know Carhartt pants and a messenger bag and dreadlocks. And then I saw like seven of them. This, this wasn't something that it was original. Like this is something that, that there's many people doing this, or or people saying I, you know I, I go to Goodwill to find the kind of the cool T-shirts and but everybody was doing that. It was this sort of like it's it's anti-cultural, but it's this cultural. There's this homogenous sense to Billingham in which everyone's kind of against the same things. And, and so, as I wrestled with this, uh, this thought, I, it, it made me realize it's not a matter of what you resist in culture, it's just what culture you belong to. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but we sort of are influenced by culture continually. They, they say that on average, and it depends on which consumer report you're looking at, on average, um, a man or a woman is inundated with 600 to 3,000 media messages a day. Getting them to buy something or to realize something that they really, really need. And isn't it interesting that the more way that media sort of comes into our life, the more that it, you know is in our cell phones and on our websites and the billboards and the radio and the TV, we are inundated with media messages. It's not a matter of whether or not you'll be brought into culture. It's just a matter of how you will be. And, and so this is not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, what I'm talking about is there's an informative, um, a con- conformative media message that's continually being brought in, and they say that the more subconscious you are to it, the better. And, and for which of us is that not true? How much of us, just by the style, stylistic choices we make, are not somehow influenced by culture? So we're aligned to it, we're conformed to it. It's not necessarily always a bad thing, but it does come naturally for us. And, and Romans 12, 2, of course, reminds us that um, Paul, again, is reminding a church in Rome, don't, don't be conformed any longer to patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and what's the renewing of the mind? It's the scripture that comes in and informs us and challenges us, transforms our hearts and our f- affections and our desires so that we can live in culture, but that we're not being absolutely informed by culture. It is the scripture that in which we find our foundation. Culture is such a, um, a fleeting guide at times, not because of, there's not enjoyments in it, but because it's absolutely fleeting. I mean, iPhone is going to have another new phone. It's something that's going to be fleeting, and there's going to be a new version of that. And people are continually wanting to be satisfied in, in the things of this life, but, but even after however long this world has been spinning, people are still as unsatisfied as they were before. And even for those that get everything they want, they end up six feet under at some point. And the toys and the things that they collect are still on shelves, collecting dust. So it's not that culture is bad, it's just that we are, are so involved in it, and, and at the same time, we have to realize how fleeting it is. Martin Luther said, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Meaning that our feelings change depending on how much sleep we got. Our, our emotions change depending on how many kids we have. Our, our thoughts are challenged depending on what we ate, 
It's a poor guy. Yet scripture itself is, is something that is stable, is consistent. Paul is saying one of the things that he's, he's casting his faith into is the solidity and authority and the continuity of scripture. So scripture is one thing, but, but what is it that he's saying accords with scripture? And he begins to talk about Jesus Christ. He says, I, this is a matter of first importance that Christ died on the cross, that he was uh, killed for our sins, that he was raised on the third day. Paul talks about Christ as someone would talk about anything else. He talks about it like a headline. You know, Julius Caesar once existed, that sort of fact. Or, this is the result of the elections. Or, this is what the weather is like today. And Jesus Christ died. He's talking about something that not only accords to Scripture, but happened in history. He's talking about a historical event. Something that happened. And I find this incredibly, incredibly satisfying. When I was in, um, I got an opportunity to, to, to go to Spain, and I remember being on a bus. I, I didn't necessarily read a whole lot of Spanish, or could read a whole lot of Spanish, but there was a newspaper um, on the ground, and, and, and by looking at it, I didn't know enough, but I could tell enough that something tragic had occurred in the United States. And the news was getting into us a bit late. So I, I you know, get home and get off the bus and check the internet and find out that there was a massacre at Virginia Tech. It was getting to us about 24 hours later. But as I read about that, and my, my heart was inclined to think about my country and think about the people there, think about the tragedy and the death and the massacre that, that a, um, a very lost man committed, I was reminded of the fact that my awareness of this event did not change the fact that it happened. It doesn't matter whether I was aware that that happened or not. It didn't matter whether I was there or not. And it didn't matter whether I cared or not. That event happened. Something took place. Historically took place. And as I think about the gospel, as I think about the, even the word, glad tidings or, or good news, what we must think about with the gospel is that it's something that happened. Historically took place. And we, as believers, live in the wake of that. Our lives are identified because of this historical event. You, has anybody ever seen the movie Traffic here before? Familiar with the movie Traffic? It's about drug wars. Okay. You'll, you'll remember when uh, one of the guys in this movie was talking about this, but um, I, and I did a little research just to, just to make sure of it. But they, they talked about at the end of World War II, when the war had ended, years later they would go back to several of these specific islands. And what they would find on these islands is Japanese soldiers still ready for war. Years later, they're vigilant. They've got their gun, they've got their uniform, and they are ready to pull the trigger. Here they are, after the war has ended, and they haven't heard the news that it's done. We oftentimes, as believers, don't live in the wake of what we believe to be accomplished in Jesus Christ. But the war had finished, and we, as a result, live and point back to the fact that it happened historically took place and was done. I was really excited to get the opportunity to, um, when I was also in Spain, uh, Tara, my wife, and I got a chance to go to Westminster Abbey. And I was super, super excited just to sit down in this old church, this cool building, be involved there on Easter Sunday, jazz. And, and as the, the, the man got up and spoke, what he said was, um, there are those in my denomination that defend 
the historical nature of Jesus, and there are those that don't believe it. But the important thing is that it happened in our hearts. And my just my heart sank. I just thought there, there's there's people that are buried in this church that are rolling over in their graves that that fought for the fact that this was historical. This, see, there's a big push right now that that Jesus Christ can die for your sins in your heart and, and metaphorically rise from the dead in your heart. And what's sad about this is that there's atheists that that get this, and that, and there's pastors that don't. You guys familiar with Christopher Hitchens? He's got a lot of press in the news. He, he, was, um, he was talking with a, a gal who was also a pastor of, of, a, of a church. I'm not sure which one. And they were both being interviewed. And, and, uh, and, and, and Hitchens, as an atheist, a very committed atheist, said to her, I think the resurrection sounds stupid. To which her response was, well, it doesn't matter whether it happened or not, like the, the guy at Westminster. It just matters that it happened in your heart. And that gives us hope. And Hitchens' response was, well, then you're not a Christian in any meaningful sense of the word. The atheist got it. He doesn't get it, but he got it. And, and I, as, I, as I think about the challenge of the fact that I, I can't live my life based on a metaphor, I find so much joy in the fact that it happens. If someone were to come up to me and, and offer me a metaphoric ice cream cone, I, I don't know what I would say. I don't know what I would do with that. Or if my boss were to offer me a, a metaphoric vacation, but I wasn't too worried because I also got offered a metaphoric paycheck while I was gone. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just don't know what to do with that. But suddenly, somehow in, in Christian circles or spiritual circles, we talk about that as, as if that's, that's fine and good. But I don't find any comfort in the fact, unless it happens. Uh, my, my pastor pulled me aside when I said this, and, and we got a chance to talk about it. So maybe, maybe Nate will want to do the same. But um, <laughs> when, when asked about the strength of my faith, when somebody's asked me about that, one of my pastors asked me, Josh, how strong is your faith? My response was, as strong as the evidence for the empty tomb. My faith is as strong as the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that didn't happen, I'm done. Unless that happened historically, proving his divinity, his power over all things, including death, I'm done. And yes, it's, it's because the scripture breathes that into my heart. But unless that happened historically, I'm done. And I, I think Paul backs that up when he says, unless it happened, I'm the most to be pitied. So the fact that we believe not just in a concrete faith because it's according to scripture, yes, but we have a concrete faith because it's according to history. We believe in something that, that happened. Literally. And, and, and Paul saying, here's saying that there's two things that happened literally. Two parts of the gospel. And I think this is really important for um, believers to understand that, that you've got to be able to hold both parts of the gospel. Without one part of the gospel, it's no longer good news. You've got to have both the cross and you've got to have the empty tomb. That both parts are what make up the gospel story. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has taken away our sins and put a death to sin. That He rises from the tomb, putting a death to to death. Unless both of these things happen, it is not good news. And Paul is saying, it happened. 
throughout the rest of this passage, she would go on to say, and there's a plethora of people who saw him, that saw him and talked with him and believed him. We believe in a risen, not metaphoric, but a very risen, literal Savior who put an end to a very literal sin in our lives. So the object of our faith, is it strong? Yes. Is it strong because it's God-breathed and profitable? Yes. Is it strong because it happened? Yes. Finally, it's, it's strong for at least one final reason that I'll say today. When you look at this passage and look through verses 1 through 4, what you'll see is a lot of verbs. You'll see Paul talking about us receiving the gospel, us preaching the gospel, of us delivering the gospel, of us standing in the gospel, of us grasping the gospel. Sort of this kind of passive, passing around of the objective gospel hand to hand, talking about it, breathing it in, passing it along. What we find is that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, not just in a list of things to do, or a chart, or a map, or a list of commands. He has revealed himself, most of all, in a story. Now, I, I love studying systematic theology. You kind of just categorize everything, and that's kind of the way my mind works. I want to understand what it is I'm looking at. But, but I really have to wrestle with the fact that God has chosen from beginning to end, and now extending far beyond us in our lives, to tell his story as a story. And we love stories as people. We love telling stories. We love. I, I got a chance to just sit down with Trevor last night and just share our stories together. We're informed by stories. We love stories. We watch a ton of movies and read a ton of books, and 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 we love stories. And God has chosen to reveal Himself in a story. One of the things that I learned in in writing class. Is there any English literature majors here? Anybody? Yes? All right. Um, there's always a couple. Are you teaching? Uh, no. So, yeah, neither am I. So, I don't know. What do you do with English literature? You're not teaching that much. Um, one of the things that, that, that you learn about writing and about a good story is that the author will tell a story and he won't waste any chapters. That there's one single storyline that he's telling, and every chapter finds its purpose, and how well it brings to life the main story. And so it may even seem cluttered at certain points, but the ending will bring it together and align it together. And what we find is God does not waste chapters. A good playwright, when they're writing a play or a musical or a scene, write parts out, and a a good one won't write parts just for good actors. What they'll do is they'll write in actors that tell the story, that make the story the number one thing to happen. Our lives are meant to be a reflection of the main story that God is telling, that we breathe Him in and pass Him along, making the storyline of God one of central importance. But you also find that God does not waste actors. Uh, if, if you've ever seen amateur theater or uh, sometimes even professional theater or, or a movie, that sometimes you'll walk away from the scene maybe thinking the acting was you know, so-so, it was fine for what it was. And there'll always be like a couple people on the stage or in the show that seem to kind of draw your attention to them. That they, they, they seem to be very energetic and they seem to be, have a lot of stage presence or charisma. And so you'll walk away going, well, you know, that, that kid really did a good job. Like, they really brought, brought my attention. 
But what I've realized is, as, as well-intentioned as that actor may be, they've done a poor job on helping tell the story. Their stage presence, or their, their way of wanting to get attention, has drawn the story to themselves and away from the main storyline. Away from the central character, which is Jesus Christ. In history, according to scripture, that he's come. And our lives are meant to be something that points to him. That reveals him. That reveals his glory. He's chosen to reveal himself in a story. Jesus came as the definitive event. The event that would define all other events. Um, Two more just kind of media movie questions. Anybody like the Simpsons here? Any Simpsons fans? Couple? Alright. One of the glories of the Simpsons is that you don't have to have any knowledge of the Simpsons to watch it. You can kind of just turn it on and get drawn in. They never grow up. They never get older. The house never changes. It's always the same people doing different things. Our lives are not like that. They're not episodic. That require no previous knowledge of any previous scenes or characters. They may seem like a sitcom at times. But I assure you that they're not. They're, they're involved in a very much larger story. Anybody seen The Princess Bride? A few more of those. Same? Okay. That's a weird movie. I, I like it. But... And I... I just, I struggle because it's got some of the weirdest characters. R-O-U-S's, Mad Max, like these, these lightning quicksands, flame spurts, the giants, chases, escapes, true love. I mean, the whole thing about the Princess Bride is that you've got a lot of random characters, but they, they are brought into a main story between these two characters, Wesley and Buttercup. They make sense within the story of how they bring together the story. Your life and, and even even the Bible has a lot of weird characters. Talking animals. Stars that pour forth speech. You may have some just awkward relatives. We have a bunch of odd characters. But they're brought into this panorama of scripture that focuses on the definitive event of Jesus Christ. Your life will make sense and be defined by its relationship to that. So our faith is not something that we find within ourselves. That is not a good definition of faith. Rather, faith ought ought to be seen more as an idea of trust. When you guys sat down on these chairs, did anybody stop to think, what if mine isn't screwed in correctly? And yet, there's an architect behind it. There's someone who made that chair, and you can just trust it by sitting in That is more akin to biblical faith than blind faith. Our understanding of faith is not seen as something that we can find within ourselves. Our understanding of faith is defined by the character, the, the work of Jesus Christ, the definitive event, the one who can eradicate sin and put to death death. Left to ourselves, we see brokenness. Left to ourselves, we see people just influenced by culture and never fully satisfied in it. Left to ourselves, we see things that we try to find as all-satisfying, 
but in the end end up being something that is incomplete and insufficient to help us. What Scripture tells us is that the biggest problem in our lives is not being satisfied by things. The biggest problem is being able to stand before a holy God and be clean. And Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, comes within human history to live as the definitive event, to live as the person to live as the death, to live as the life, to live as the way, truth, and life for us. So the question would be, do you believe in Jesus? Not do you, have, do you believe enough in Him, but is He enough for you? Do you see the work of Christ being able to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and make you absolutely clean before the Father by no merit of your own? That is the Jesus that is worthy of full, active faith. That is the Jesus Jesus worthy of following and placing your complete confidence and trust in. And Jesus says in John 14, Because I live, you also shall live. Because His life is life, you also can have life in Him. Your faith doesn't have to be in vain, because Jesus' life was not in vain. And you can stand in Him because He stood for you. So I would remind you of the Gospel that we preach to you. That you believe in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the truth we preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For we deliver to you as a first importance what we also have received, that Christ died on the cross according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the definitive event. And we thank you that you've given us your scriptures in which we can peer into and understand your work, character, and nature. We thank you for the solidity of Scripture which informs our minds and informs our hearts and changes the way we think and transforms what we delight and desire. We thank you for your Scripture that isn't just out there but comes within human history. We thank you for your Scripture that becomes alive within history, within human history, in the lives of people. We thank you, Lord, that it's not metaphoric. We thank you that's literal and real. We thank you for being enough to satisfy us that we can stand in you because you stood for us. We thank you for the gospel that, that we can stand in because it's cleansed us from all sin. We don't bear the guilt and penalty of sin any longer. You have given to us new life. We thank you for this message. We thank you that yours is the story that before we were born, you were active. After we are gone, you are active. Your mission and your work will stand because of what Jesus has done. So we thank you for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.